Hi, I'm Michael Couture, and you're listening to The West Block. Canada has advised Canadians to curtail non-essential international travel. These are significant steps, and we will do more. The Prime Minister in self-isolation. I will remain in self-isolation for 14 days. Our government will be creating a billion-dollar COVID-19 response fund. A lot of things that we're working on with the financial markets, it's going to work out fine. It won't be easy. And that is especially true uh, in Alberta, where we have been hit by a triple whammy. Stay home. That is the message the government is telling Canadians to try and control the spread of the new coronavirus. The Prime Minister and his wife are in self-isolation after she tested positive for COVID-19 late last week. What else is being done to help Canadians get through this pandemic? And joining me now from Winnipeg is Dr. Gigi Osler, the past president of the Canadian Medical Association. Thanks so much for being here. Now, first, how would you rate the government's response to the COVID-19 outbreak? We're very pleased to hear the response of the government to the ongoing crisis. And we can't emphasize enough to Canadians that now is not the time to panic, but it really is the time to act because any inaction now will have consequences in the coming weeks. Now, you talk, health officials have said we have to talk about social distancing, restricting travel, washing your hands. What more should we be doing to help flatten the curve of this disease? You mentioned several important things. So social distancing is key to slowing down the spread of the virus in the community. And what does social distancing look like? Social distancing looks like staying at home if you can. Don't go to the emergency department or your doctor's office if you think you're sick, but call your province's coronavirus health line. Work from home if you can. Avoid large gatherings and cancel all non-essential travel. Uh, that's key right now to slowing down the spread in the community. Now you talk about that, but how difficult is it to, for people to actually do it? Because a lot of people sit there and go, I feel fine, it doesn't mean me, I can go out. How difficult mm -hmm. is it to combat that kind of attitude? I think it'll be more difficult if we look back in a few weeks and think, what if we had done that? So we're encouraging Canadians to do everything that you can. Granted, not everybody can work from home, but we can cut down on the amount of travel that we do in our community. We can make choices about non-essential travel, both within Canada and internationally. We're all in this together, is what we heard the Prime Minister say earlier. And if we take action together, then we will get through this together. Now, you spoke earlier about not just showing up to the ER. Uh, there have been complaints throughout the week from health professionals. Do you think that they have what they need in terms of equipment and human resources in order to properly deal with this? We are hearing from frontline healthcare workers, so the doctors and nurses seeing patients, that there continues to be a need for personal protective equipment to protect themselves and more testing supplies and testing sites outside of hospitals and ERs. We are seeing that come to fruition across the country, but it has to be a sustained response uh, over the coming weeks ahead. Doctor, we're hearing just in Ontario alone, hospitals are already beyond capacity. I mean, don't forget that we are around um, the, the peak period for flu season. 
how much are we ready in terms of the entire capacity when you consider that the health minister said we could anticipate an infection rate from anywhere between 30 percent and 70 percent of the Canadian population? This is a concern that I'm hearing from doctors and nurses across the country, that this is the calm before the storm. So the time to act is now, and this is when we need to do those precautionary measures, like the social distancing. Because if we don't act now, we may see surges of sick people in the coming weeks that overwhelm the healthcare system. So I strongly urge all Canadians to take this seriously. Don't panic, but do what you can now to protect yourself your family and your loved ones. And I want to pick up on that panic because how difficult is it to maintain calm in this environment? I mean, you have health officials like yourself keep saying, don't panic, but governments are shutting down. They're saying to limit large gatherings. Sports leagues are completely shutting down. We're seeing people flock to stores to stock up on things that they may or may not need, frankly. In all of this, can we do a better job of managing fears of the population? We can, and part of it is the messaging that you're hearing from the Prime Minister, part of the messaging from the public health doctors, from doctors such as myself, to say now is not the time to panic because now we can take action to prevent any surge of sick people across the country. So now really is the time to act, act rationally, think about what you can do in your life to stay healthy and to stay safe. But is there a frustration on your part that no matter how much that message is hammered, how much that message is out there, that still people seem to be panicking and flocking and store shelves are completely stripped bare of everything? All we can do is keep repeating the same message. Don't panic, take action. Keep yourself safe, social distance, wash your hands, cough into your sleeve. These are the messages that you're going to hear from your health officials and from your government officials because we do need to keep Canada safe and healthy. Don't panic, but stay safe. Now, the Prime Minister has said it's a Team Canada response to all of this, but we can't help forget that health is a provincial matter. How worried are you that some provinces are more able to deal with this than others? Certainly you see some provinces like British Columbia, Ontario and Quebec where they have more confirmed cases of COVID-19 uh, really leading the way in terms of response. We know the virus is out in the community and we see other provinces now stepping up to the response. In the medical community, our provincial medical associations are working closely with the Canadian Medical Association so that we can continue to lead to that coordinated response between the provinces and nationally. Are you concerned though that there are other regions in this country, namely the north, uh, mm -hmm. that will not be able to deal with this if there's an outbreak there? You know, certainly we've got communities in the north, we've got communities rural, we've got vulnerable communities even within our cities that we need to pay special attention to. So part of the messaging about staying healthy and safe now to prevent the healthcare system getting overwhelmed helps those folks out in the north, out in the rural communities, those who might not have secure homes. We need to do what we can now to ensure the healthcare system stays capable of looking after all of us. Okay, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks very much for joining us, Dr. Osler.
The government has announced a significant fiscal stimulus to combat the spread of the new coronavirus. But is it enough to help businesses and workers? And how is this affecting the Canadian economy? Joining me now is Goldie Heyer, the President and CEO of the Business Council of Canada, and Philip Cross, who's a senior fellow at the McDonnell-Laurier Institute. Thanks very much for being with us, guys. First with you, Goldie, with this stimulus, what are you hearing from the business community right now? Will it be enough to sustain? Will it be enough even to get us through the next month? Well, I would suggest it's a misnomer to call it stimulus. I think what we're having here is strategic interventions on the part of government to target those that are being directly impacted. You know, from those who for need EI support, from those who might need childcare support, uh, and putting the money into health care is really the priority here because we have a health crisis. Mm -hmm. And that means making sure that our health, uh, health system is well funded. There's going to be need for liquidity. There's going to be all kinds of responses that are necessary. We are, we're in a place now where, where businesses are focused on their people, first and foremost, and ensuring that we are doing everything that we can to comply with the requests of the public health system. I think this is when Canada really works and works well. We trust our public health mm -hmm. officials. There's a confidence there. We actually can control how, how big of an impact this will have on us and on our economy by doing the things that we need to do from a health care perspective. The other, the other aspect of this is the business interruption side, because mm -hmm. it is an economic issue as well. And we're worried about supply chains. We're worried about people not being able to work. We're worried about access to, you know, to, to uh, services and to goods. All of these things are real considerations. And I think businesses are actually trying to go even further than our government and public health officials are, are saying. Anecdotally, they're saying no more than 150 in some cases, 250 is what the governments are saying. I know many of our businesses who are just saying no more than 25 people in a room. So we're wow. doing everything we can to try and mitigate that. Clearly no international travel, no local travel unless absolutely necessary. We've canceled our own meeting that we yeah. were scheduled to happen uh, have, to have next month. In terms of the spending, though, Philip, would you say, because the parliamentary budget officer is saying, you know, we can spend a lot more and it'll still maintain our, our good debt to GDP ratio. Do you agree with that? I don't think we should be concerned with debt-to-GDP ratios at all. This is a health care crisis. It has economic implications, and we should be aware of that. But fundamentally, we're not going to solve this with monetary and fiscal uh, stimulus or economic policy. We have to get this virus under control. If we don't do that, nothing we do on the economic side is going to stop this uh, free fall from continuing to accelerate. So at all costs, then? I don't know about all costs, but uh, we, you know we should be certainly incentivizing people to have the best possible health care outcomes. That should be the priority in this. Cutting interest rates half a, a full percentage point is is window dressing. Yeah, yeah and it's about containment. It's what everybody is saying. You need to contain this, and a lot of that requires social distance. You know, you read the statistics. Even Minister Haidu, um, Chancellor Merkel, and others have said, you know, we want to be calm, we want to be reassuring, but we also want to remind people that there is a risk here that this is going to get worse before it gets better. Minister Freeland. Has said the same thing. We don't want panic. We don't want chaos. Right. Do what the public health officials are asking you to do. But you know, Mike, we also have to be cognizant that we're human beings. We mm -hmm. have emotions. We have feelings. We have responses to this. And many of our businesses are starting to see enormous pressure being put on their mental health, uh, on the health support right. that's necessary. The social issues that are starting to form here are very real, and we want to make sure that targeted funding is going to that. Because as Phil rightly says, we don't have. It's not the economic side. It's the healthcare side that'll help us get the economic side and under control. And the difficulty could be if, the, you know, you widen the purse strings and then spend a whole lot of money, but then people aren't going anywhere. You have pro right. sports leagues that are shutting down. <laughs> um, you have, you know, yeah. parliament that stopped and then all of these businesses. And it and there are a number of businesses that are saying, don't worry, we'll pay you while you're home, but not the people who are earning that hourly wage, right. people who, you know, potentially 
Mark Cuban of the Dallas Mavericks said, we'll look at possibly paying the people that, you know, are selling the popcorn and whatnot. But what do you do about the other owners who aren't doing that? What it shows is we need to weather this storm. I mean, Philip said rightly, we need to do what we need to do, uh, mm -hmm. the best that we can to weather this storm. And we need to recognize that the fluidity of this situation, this is temporary. We just don't know how temporary it is. We don't know how long yeah. it's, it's going to last. We will get past this as we got past SARS and, and other things in our history. But we need, a sh we need the immediate focus that this government is putting on communicating, on, on ensuring Canadians and reassuring Canadians and making sure that our health care system is supported and doing all that we can on that front. But we also need to look a little bit beyond that because there is going to be real collateral damage mm -hmm. to business and to people during this process. What do we need to do at the other end of that? I would suggest that the Minister of Finance and others may want to look at an economic advisory committee that perhaps is ta tasked with the mid to long term. Mm -hmm. What will that recovery look like? Because we don't want to arrive at the other end and say, now what do we do? Yeah. Why don't we have people thinking about that as much as we have people thinking about the immediate and the short term implications? And Philip, how much of that thinking is going on now, do you think, behind the scenes yeah. and looking at, okay, when we finally emerge from this, if plan A goes to plan, go, I mean, if this is a plan A, I, we may be through plan D, C, you know, yeah. and all the rest of them, but how much of that planning is going on behind the scenes right now? Yeah. Well, I think that's the right way to think about it. Plan A should be on containing this healthcare threat. Plan B, as, as Goldie said, is then worrying about the collateral damage to companies and workers. That's when government should be spending more. That's where the focus of spending should be. We're not going to spend our way out of this health care crisis. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, it's going to be things that don't cost the government money. Washing hands, keeping social distance, restricting travel. These things don't cost a lot of money. Uh, but obviously there's a great deal of damage has been to the, done to the economy. Whole industries are, are shutting down. I mean, you know, the, the stock market, Canadian companies are worth one-third less today than they were a couple weeks ago. That's a massive hit to the economy. So the planning is difficult. Does this mean that now that we know that the budget isn't coming on March 3rd, uh, 30th, do we just tear it up and start at square one again? I think so. I think clearly this is the primordial economic issue we're going to have to deal with. Mm -hmm. It's going to be very difficult for the government to pivot that quickly. Obviously, you know, this is a classic black swan. This came out of nowhere. Nobody was expecting this. The whole budget planning cycle was going into other priorities. But I think they're going to have to pivot. Uh, this is the first, second and third economic problem this government has to deal with now. Uh, so they have to focus on that and that exclusively. And you think business businesses want to see that, Goldie, that they want to see, okay, we've realized this has been a seminal moment. We have to move on and focus the budget on what next. Look, the rules of the game are thrown out. Uh, yeah. This is this is not business as usual. It's not politics as usual. It's not budget making as usual. We are in real live time here. We're seeing it. Just look at the last week. Uh, all that's happened from your show last week to your show this week. Right. We, we are in a whole new uh, uncharted territory here. And I think we have to stop thinking of the traditional ways of the budget's been moved or when are they going to do the economic. Right. It doesn't matter. The truth is that every day we need to reassess what the actions are necessary to be taken. And I think the, 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 the real issue here is, is making sure that uh, the, the communication side of this is uh, clear, it's consistent, mm -hmm. and it's united. We're, we're all Canadians. This is the time to set aside all our local issues right. and parochial issues. We can't have conflicting advice being given. I think we need clear, and I think mm -hmm. and, uh, Deputy Prime Minister Freeland is probably the best person to drive this on a day-to-day -day basis, especially given the unfortunate situation in the Trudeau household. Uh, but we need to be clear, we need to be consistent, we need to be unified, we need to be regular in that communication.
communications, because um, it, every day new developments are going to force you to reassess, is what we did yesterday even relevant today, or do we need to do more? And part of that united front, I think we saw on Friday, where you had all of the House leaders and the leaders of the parties come out together and say, okay, we've all agreed April 20th is when we'll pick this back up again, we'll take a five-week break. How long does that last, Philip? Do you think that that goodwill together, because this is still politics on, on this hill, right. uh, and people will want political points to be made off of anything, or does, is this one of, those, one of those situations where it's, you know what, all hands on deck, let's just be united? I'm not going to predict people's behavior, but this is a crisis. This is a crisis like 9-11, where everything changed overnight. It's like the financial crisis in September 2008. Uh, by which time, you know, four months later, the government then was planning on a surplus. Four months later, they're running a $50 billion deficit. Uh, governments can, and in this instance, have to pivot and change priorities very quickly. They can do it. They've done it in the past. And uh, this is a situation yeah. where we have to do it and again. The good news is they showed us nonpartisanship today by passing USMCA, arguably one of the most yeah. important right. things. When we needed a good news moment, we were able to deliver a good news moment. So that, I'm, I'm encouraged by that. Yeah. We'll have to leave it there, gentlemen. Thanks very much for being here. Really appreciate it. Panic and fear is playing out on the stock market as COVID-19 continues to spread. Now, add to that the showdown between Russia and Saudi Arabia, which is flooding the market with oil, and that is driving the price down. It's having a significant impact on suppliers on this side of the Atlantic. So, what should we expect in the coming weeks with the markets? And is there any good news in all these losses? Joining me now from Denver, Colorado, is geopolitical expert Peter Zion. Peter, we have witnessed plunging stock markets these past few weeks. Do you expect that this is going to continue? I mean, will it get even worse? Well, the, the stock market issue is primarily a fear play right now, not that it's entirely unrealistic, but what's going on in energy is much more grounded in the fundamentals. When the Chinese went offline back in January and February, total Chinese demand probably dropped by about three to four million barrels a day. I mean, that, that's huge. That's about half of what went offline during the 1997-1998 Asian financial crisis. And now with the United States and Italy and Germany and Iran and all these other countries starting to shut down, that number is going to go up. So we haven't this kind of imbalance in the market in 20 years. It's going to hurt a lot. And you're a numbers person. I mean, you're looking at that global data all the time. What are you looking for to see any change? And how is this virus being managed? And is it possible, it's, is it possible that there's an impact in North America and on the markets? Well, we're very early in the epidemic right now, and we're still waiting for some good data to come out of Korea. I mean, the, the Chinese first instinct is a lie. The Iranians don't have a great medical system. So Korea is really the first first world country that is going to be generating some good information on the on zero and the, the transmissibility and how long people have to be out. But what we're looking at in terms of solutions is pretty obvious. Uh, we have to shelter in place. We have to limit contact. Oil is the fuel of transport, and that's about half of global demand for crude oil is about moving things from A to B. And if things aren't moving and if people aren't moving, you're going to be seeing a catastrophic reduction in global demand for the stuff. So if you're a high-cost producer, this really is the worst sort of market to be in. Yeah, and watching the industry, I mean, you see this ongoing battle between Russia and Saudi Arabia and the impact that that's having on the oil sector, as you just said. 
How do you see this playing out now, especially for Canada? Well, the, the Russia-Saudi angle is very significant there. Uh, the Russians basically said that they didn't want to make a cut. Uh, the, the Saudis were like, coronavirus is coming, we have to cut, otherwise the market will be out of whack. And when the Russians refused, the Saudis just flooded the market. They're adding about 2.5 million barrels a day by May 1, that's their goal. So this 4 million barrel per day imbalance, that's our starting point. It's going to be a lot larger than that. And if you're in North America, you're dealing with some very high cost production. In the U.S. shale fields, the overall break-even is probably between $40 and $45 a barrel. In Alberta, it's 70 or more. But the real issue for the next 12 months isn't so much the full cycle break-even, but what's the lifting cost? What's the operational cost? In Alberta, that's probably about 30. In the United States, that's probably about 15 to 20. So the ability for Alberta to keep output moving in this sort of environment, we are right at the razor's edge of what is technically possible right now before more countries shut down, before the Saudi crude hits the market. So we're looking at a catastrophic adjustment in terms of what is financially possible in Canada, and it's going to hit in just a few weeks. So how important is it now for Canada and Alberta, the energy sector uh, centered there, to have a rethink on energy and maybe change course on you know, going all in on oil? Well, that's going to be a political question for the most part. Uh, the Albertans would say with reasonable accuracy that it's all about reaching a market that can take their crude, that takes infrastructure, and if they could reach a broader market, then they'd have a higher selling price for what they produce. There is no way, however, that you can take a province of roughly 4 million people and have it change its economic structure in a short period of time in a time when people actually can't move around. So that is a question for two and three years from now, not a question for today. Uh, at this point, industrial infrastructure is what it is. It takes years to change. We're talking about shut-ins. There's really no other way that this is going to go. Well, let's try and end this on a good note, at least. Late Friday, the government announced that the new NAFTA trade deal with the U.S. and Mexico was ratified. Do you see any glimmer of hope coming from this uh, for Canada? Oh, certainly. Global manufacturing supply chains are completely out of whack right now. They're dependent upon large numbers of steps in many different countries, and so everything's basically shutting down. This is going to force all manufacturers in the world to go with shorter, simpler supply chains that are closer to the end consumer. The United States and Mexico are the only, or two of only three countries in the G20 that actually have a reasonable demography for a long-term recovery based on local demand and local resources. So this is going to generate a massive reindustrialization of the North American space. Last I checked, Canada's part of that. Good thing, too. <laughs> Unfortunately, I'll have to leave it there, Peter. Thanks very much for joining us. That's Peter Zion in Colorado. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks so much for joining us. For the West Block, I'm Mike LeCouture. Have a good week and stay safe.